This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to TVN's Praise Podcast, hosted by Matt and Lori Crouch where you will hear interviews with some of your favorite Bible teachers, pastors, authors, and Christian leaders. On today's episode, Priscilla Shire hosts her brother, Christian singer, Anthony Evans. Be encouraged as Anthony shares his incredible testimony and reveals how God's goodness empowers us to refuse any temptation the world has to offer. I I feel like the best way to start an interview with you is to just make sure that everybody is clear on the fact that anything good you know about music came from your big sister. (laughs) <laughs> no, it didn't. No, it didn't. No, yeah, I mean, no, it she's didn't. She's a great singer, though, just in case you didn't know. She's a great singer. But it didn't, <laughs> it, she didn't teach me how to sing. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, of course, everybody knows you. Most people know you for your music, for your singing. You've been leading worship. You've been singing um, in churches and venues, really, across the world, actually. But you just got back from, I always want to say Belgium, but you weren't in Belgium. You were were in Berlin. (laughs) You were in Berlin even just recently Mm -hmm. um, singing there. So literally your gift has taken you all over the world. That's what folks mostly know you for. But a lot of times when you're standing on a platform, people just have this picture they create about what your life actually looks like. And they assume that you haven't faced the same struggles they have. Um, they assume that there aren't the same things that they're facing in their lives happening in yours. And that's why I appreciate so much what we really came to talk about. And that's this right here, Unexpected Places, that you wrote this book so that you could be vulnerable and authentic. Why did you think this was important? I thought it was important. Well, when the publisher, when W Publishing asked me to write this book, at first I was like, uh, are y'all trying to get to my sister or my dad? Because I felt because it just felt like, why are y'all calling me to write a book? I'm the singer of the family. Yeah. My sisters write, my, my dad writes, but uh, they said to me, Anthony, we believe that the, the tip of the iceberg is worship leading as it relates to you and your life. We want to understand what's underneath the surface that led us to what we see. Yeah. But we know that there's a bigger picture underneath the surface. And um, a lot of times that bigger picture makes you more relatable to people. Yeah. That you're not just on stage singing, you know, and, and communicating in, in a kind of a polished way. Um, sometimes that can make you feel far from an audience. So growing up, I had people who decided to be honest, vulnerable, and authentic with me on my journey. Not necessarily just in books, like people in my life. And it always helped me in, in my journey. Yeah. And I thought if, if I could, uh, <laughs> had to make a deal with them. When I, when I was doing this book, I had to write micro chapters because I'm not a big reader. I have the attention span. I, I, I don't have a great attention span. No, and you know don't. that. You know, <laughs> as my sister, she knows that. Uh, so I was like, if I can write micro chapters, four or five pages, you can sit down and get the get the get get what the point is and then move on. Then I, I, I can I can write the book. Well, a lot of people are going to appreciate that. I appreciated that when I was reading this book. I read it. No joke. Not just because I'm your sister. I read this sucker in about you know, I don't know, two and a half, three hours, I just sat down and could not stop turning the pages. This is a good book, Anthony. Thank you. It's awesome. And I loved reading, really, it's your story. Really, you take us through the chapters of your life, the struggles that you faced in those chapters of the life, and how the Lord actually used that struggle to make you the man that you are today. So I do want to ask you about some of that, because I don't think people... 
I think people look at our family and they make assumptions because they see our family now. They see grown kids right. um, who are serving the Lord and they think we were all little angels when we were growing up and we just sat around the dinner table while dad did devotions and, you know, everything was just perfect and we had a good upbringing. But there was a lot of struggle being a PK, particularly right. for you because you mm-hmm. felt a little lost in that shuffle up that fishbowl of being a preacher's kid. Right. Um, and for those of those people that might not be aware of who our dad is, why don't you just kind of talk a little bit about our upbringing and the, some of the struggles that you faced in that? Yeah, well, our, our dad is a pastor. His name is Dr. Tony Evans. We're here in Dallas. This is where his, his church is. He's an amazing He's man. He's a good pastor. Yeah. yeah. He's a great man. He's um, my, our, both of our parents are, are great people. What yeah. makes them great, and I'll say this, I say this publicly all the time, what makes our parents great is that they were the same off stages they were, they were on. Yeah. And I think when you're dealing with preacher's kids, we're already a little bit crazy anyway. Like, we're a little bit borderline. Speak for yourself. Well, well I'm going to come interview her one time. Y'all get to hear all the, <laughs> the stuff. So, uh, yeah, so uh, it, it was hard growing up a preacher's kid. I start the book um, talking about when I was a child, when I was 12 and 13, it was the glory days of an event called Promise Keepers. And that was huge. And my dad was one of the keynote speakers. So we got to go on trips with him. Um, we all kind of had little special moments with him. And I remember being at Texas Stadium here in Dallas, back, back when 70,000 people, 70,000 men would show up to these events and hearing the audience roars. My dad is so good at making, using illustrations and, and making these, these mammoth points. And he was doing one of his moments. And the audience was starting to roar, and I remember sitting backstage at 12 and 13 thinking, I can never be him. While the audience was roaring, I would be like, I can, I can never be him. And did you feel the pressure because, like, you, you're, you got dad's name? You know, you're a junior. Yeah. Did you just feel like people had this expectation on you that you were supposed to be that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, before that, the crowd made me feel the expectation, and not just that crowd. That's the proverbial crowd, the church crowd. It, anybody who knew who he was knew that I had his name. And they would say things like, you're going to be a preacher like your dad when you grow up? You have no idea. For, for a kid like me, the way I'm built, yeah. I'm, I'm a peacemaker. I'm the third child peacemaker. I want everybody to be happy. So I started performing to make everybody happy and trying to... My whole relationship with the Lord started as a performance to make everybody happy with yeah. who I was. Now, let me ask you this, because I don't want to cut you off, because I do want to keep continue hearing the story. But <clears throat> is there anything, because I'm thinking about the parent who's watching this right now, and I'm wondering if there's anything mom or dad could have done to take that pressure off you. Because I remember about mom and dad that one of the great things about them was that they were constantly reminding us, you do not have a responsibility to the church. You have a responsibility to us as your parents and to the Lord. But we are not putting the pressure on you to be something for the church. So I remember that they tried as best they could to take that pressure off of us. But is there anything from your vantage point that would have been even more helpful for you to just feel free to be who you were and not be just a little miniature Tony Evans. Yeah, well, it's very interesting because you, you said you mentioned what our parents did, and I and I because a lot the pressure didn't come from them. So there was a lot of times my uh, my mom would set me down and go, "No, you know you don't have to be your dad." She would say those words to me. You know you don't have to be your dad, right? I just feel like a lot of things were out of their control, honestly. Like yeah. the, a lot of the, the pressure that was coming in was just out, out of their control. It's like we're the pastors of a church, so you're going to go to the, that church, and that's just going to happen there, you know? Yeah. Um, people uh, mean well, but yeah, they're saying people, things to you that are putting right. the load on. But I was also, I'm just built different. Out of the four, there's four kids in our family. Out of the four of us, um, 
Crystal, our older sister, is the logic, logical, analytical one. Priscilla's Miss Personality. Growing up, she used to get in so much trouble for talking all the time. But now, I don't recall that. Yeah. Now it all just makes a lot of sense, and so people want to hear her talk all the time. And um, I'm the emotional one. So everything in my life, my father always says, the, and we'll talk about this later, your emotions can't be the engine. They have to be the caboose of your life or you'll be all over the place. And growing up, my emotions were the engine. So I was, all, I was, just, I was easily affected by, by things. So a lot of it was intangible. And I can't say they could have done this and it would have been better because the way that I was built yeah. wasn't something you could grab onto. You know? Do you think that dad, because okay, started out with the two girls, so it was Crystal and then me. So he had two daughters right. and then finally he right. has a son. Right. Do you think that dad had just intrinsically these visions of a football player? You know, dad's into football. Well, I mean, sports yeah. is thing. Or even the next pastor at the church or ministry. Do you think dad had a vision for you that he had to shift as he as you grew up and he realized you were wired differently than maybe what his expectation was for his firstborn son? I think he had a vision, but I don't, I, he wasn't holding me, he wasn't holding me fast to that. I think every dad, when they see a kid that's the stature of me, is like, he's going to be a football player, he's a linebacker, you know, that, that, whole, <laughs> that whole thing. But that wasn't a, I, I don't think he was married to that at all. Yeah. You know, just every dad, I think, and Texas dads, you know, y'all want to go, Friday Night Lights is a thing here, you know what I mean? That's a, <laughs> That's the thing. So, um, and I, I stopped. I didn't mention our younger brother, who is, he is the football player and the, the preacher, but he, he doesn't have any of the stuff that I, I have as it relates to pressure in my life. It didn't affect him like it did me. And he was raised exactly the same way that I was. So it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's variables. But the book, I'm obviously talking about my specific journey and how these things affected how uh, yeah. growing up in the home that we, we grew up in, although it's an amazing home, how there were moments where I struggled. I really, I really did, did struggle. And I wanted the audience to know the truth about that yeah. in this book. So, you know, did you feel like, did you feel like you were overlooked in any way? Because you mentioned in the book that you were an easy kid and you were an easy kid. You know, we all had our little things that mom and dad had to look after us for certain reasons in different ways. Probably they would say you were the most laid back and the most easy in the sense that you just seem to entertain yourself. Right. So in that, with everybody else needing to be attended to, did you, did you feel overlooked? Yeah, I would say unintentionally overlooked. Because overlooked, I'd say I'm very, I'm, I'm a, I mean, this is my family sitting right here, but I'm a very vicious protector of my family. So I don't ever want to say anything that comes off like my parents overlooked us because they didn't right. at all. Right. But I was unintentionally overlooked because my, you couldn't see the needs I had tangibly you couldn't see him. Like everybody else had tangible things. Like Priscilla gets in trouble all the time. We need to we deal with her. You know I what I mean? Like that, that. Was a, that was a thing. So, uh, and then there were other needs with my with our other siblings also, but mine just went unattended for longer. But my mom, our mom said this to me one time, and I'll never forget it. She said, "While you were wondering why why don't they give me the extra attention that my siblings get, they were praying and thanking God that we have an easy child." That was happening at the same time. Yeah. So um, that, that should, what can you do with that? Yeah. You know, what can yeah. you do with that? Except now in my life, God has used a lot of that stuff. Um, I, I was a very, again, very sensitive person. So all that has led me to, to what I get to do now. And, with, and why don't you think that, that you allowed those needs to be known? In other words, because you, we, we, had, we were asked those kinds of questions. We mm -hmm. were asked, are you okay? What do you need to talk about? 
those were questions we were asked. So was there any reason specifically why you chose not to divulge how you were really feeling? Because the way I was, the way I programmed myself was don't disturb the peace. Mm -hmm. So if there's an issue, just deal with it and you'll be all right. I've learned later in my life that no, if there's an issue and you stuff it down, you'll have a lot of issues later. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but that, that, that's what I did. Yeah. That's what I did. And, and if I fast forward to, I mean, we'll talk about this, but if I fast forward to later in my life, I was on stage on the verge of depression and having like a breakdown, a hundred percent breakdown because I just stuffed everything inside constantly. Mm -hmm. And I feel, and I was, you know, in, in our culture, we're taught, especially in the African-American culture, you're taught that's a man, like just, just stuff all that stuff down and deal with it. You know what I mean? Suck it up. Yeah. But there comes a point where it takes more strength to be vulnerable than it does That's to right. stuff stuff down. That's right. And so I made the decision yep. to, to be vulnerable and deal, and deal with m me. Well, one of the things that you talk about in your book, which is an incredible book, Unexpected Places, the thoughts on God, faith, and finding your voice. One of the things you talk about that, you know, our, our childhood and our parents, they would agree that it wasn't perfect. They were not perfect. No parents are. They would agree with that. But they were purposeful and intentional about the things that they thought were important for our lives as a, fa mm -hmm. as a family. One of the things that uh, dad and mom were intentional about was seeing each of our gifts and trying to figure out how to foster those. Right. So really, you being steered toward music is as a result of our parents going, that boy can sing. Right, but they'll, they'll tell you that they figured that out later in life. I was, I was 17, 16, 17 when they figured that out. Yep. And they were like, wait, did we miss something? What does he do? Like, what just happened? Because I was walking around the house just singing, and we and were all like, Does, did he just hit that note? Yeah, and I never, I never thought in choir practice growing up, you know, at our church, you have to be involved in a ministry. You don't just come to our church and chill. One of the things is you have to be involved. So as the kids, we were. And I remember the choir director used to call me out and be like, everybody, Anthony, yes, that's right. Everybody sing what Anthony just sang. And I never thought that was a thing. I just thought, I just heard it quick. I, I didn't yeah. think that was an ability that needed to be fostered. Yeah. So yeah, at 16 and 17, that's when they were like, uh-oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we need to help. help yeah. uh, and help. so you ended up going to Liberty University where you sang, yes. you sang with Sounds of Liberty. Just kind of describe that college experience. Well, getting to college, <laughs> uh, my dad knew the chancellor of Liberty University. So they talked without me knowing. <laughs> and before I knew it, I had, a, um, I had a scholarship to go to Liberty. And when you get a scholarship, that's basically like the Lord saying. That's where you go. Yeah, the Lord telling your parents, you're about to go to Liberty. That's right. It's, you know, it's close to free, so you're going. Uh, so <laughs> so I, I went there, and, and, and it was a very interesting time because my, my feelings had to follow my feet. I, I didn't want to sing on. At, at so you the, got a scholarship for singing. For singing, but I wanted to go into animal science, be a veterinarian. I, my, my catharsis, which I talk about in the book also, is being outside doing stuff like that. Like I have a horse now. People would never think that about me, but I'm outside guy. I love that. So I wanted to go into that field. I ended up going to Liberty. I was in rehearsals for 10, for 10 hours. I mean, that crazy stuff, yeah. you know, um, and I didn't want to sing it at this level. But fast forward, um, my feelings started to follow my feet, which is a great lesson to learn in general in life a lot of times. Uh, the don't feel like it can change if you just get up and start moving. Um, I, I, I started to love, to love what I do, yeah. Isn't that something, that you, you kind of stumbled into what actually is your destiny? 
You yeah. stumbled into that because you had your actual father, but in a lot of people's lives, it's just a father figure, or it's a, it's a Moses that sees in Joshua something Joshua does not know he has the capacity to do and says, you know what, I'm going to put you at the front lines. Right. And then right. you just sort of put one foot in front of the other because you have a scholarship, and all of a sudden you kind of stumble into what is the path that the Lord has for you. Right. But it was not easy. That's the thing that I think people need to know is that you you kind of, you know, we see you now standing on stage. You were on The Voice. Um, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, you've been on Saturday Night Live singing back up. You know, you've been in a lot of positions where people see you now and they don't know sort of the path of hardship that you had to take to get there. I wanted to read one little excerpt from your book. Um, I'm just going to start right here. It's, it says that we were growing very, very weary. We had a number of tours, hundreds of them throughout the years, concerts throughout the year, and we were on the verge of collapse. The illusion has often be cre- been created in Christian music that service always comes first, even if it's tearing you apart inside. One day after a string of back-to-back shows, I was feeling sick. My body was begging me to slow down, and I had gotten to that dangerous place where I was anxious, exhausted, emotional, and overwhelmed. Sick or not, I still had to unload a big old 18-wheeler, set up the stage, get dressed, perform like everything was great, tear the stage down, pack the gear back up into the truck, and hit the road. Then I had to do it all again the next day. I was sitting in the dressing room of one of the churches we were scheduled to perform at. I was quiet, kind of keeping to myself, and I guess my demeanor came off sour like I didn't care. I wanted to be respectful and appreciative, but sometimes when you're hurt and dog-tired, things don't come out right. So the director marched up to me, stared me in my face, and told me I was worthless, lazy, and would never do anything or accomplish anything better than where I was at that moment. I sat there stunned, not knowing how to respond. I guess I was still super naive to think everyone in Christendom was soft-hearted and super nice. How did it feel when you ran into people like that who you expected to behave a certain way and to have a certain attitude because they were Christians and yet they just kept tearing you down all of those years that you were serving in Christian music in your early 20s? Yeah, that was a hard lesson. Like when you were reading that story and I'm reliving it right here. Yeah, I can uh, see the tears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a, that's, that wasn't a, a, a good moment at all. Um, I learned, I think my, our parents did a great job of, of, in some ways, sheltering us from what you might be able, my, what you might be facing, even in Christendom. You know what I mean? What, what might come. One thing about that is that I, which is a whole other thing, it's the, the concept that when you are in ministry, you're supposed to drive yourself into the ground for the sake of, of reaching people and ministering to people. You're supposed to sacrifice your well-being for that. That is a myth. That, yeah. that is... Yeah. That will ruin your life if you feel like that is what you're supposed to be doing as a believer is hyperextending yourself. Um, you, you, you can't, obviously it sounds cliche, but you can't minister from a place of being empty like that. Yeah. And I was taught earlier on um, that through the, this experience that you're talking about that that's, that was what it was, that's what it was going to be. Yeah, um, and we hadn't seen that growing up. No. Like our family didn't come to a place of collapse because mom and dad were so busy building the church that they didn't attend to the six of us, to our family life together. So when you experience that out on the road of everybody being dog tired and ignoring even their own physical health, right. you were like, what is this? Yeah, yeah. And, and I always speak up. I, I, if I feel like something, and that wasn't really appreciated in that, in that whole scenario <laughs> that you were painting right there or that I painted in the book. Um, yeah, so to hear those words come at me, I, I literally, I could not believe that that was happening. But I, I, yeah, I couldn't believe, I still can't believe those words were said 
to my face. Did you believe any of it? When you were told, you know what, you will never accomplish anything more than when you, where you are right now, at the time you're like 22 years old, did any of that stick with you? And sort of, did you have to fight through any of that to feel like, you yeah. know what, this isn't it for me? Yes, it did. That, that, those words do stick with me. And people don't necessarily realize a lot of times the weight of words. You know what mm. I mean? A lot of people just mm. say whatever they feel and they try. They think they can come back and apologize and it be okay. But a lot of times words can burn you down emotionally to nothing. And Life then you and have to rebuild. Yeah, you right. have to rebuild that. And a lot, of, a lot of times the apology doesn't help you rebuild it. Like you have to. Like, so those words did that to me. And I feel like um, I got to a point where I was like, I'm, I got to go to counseling. I got to get this together because I cannot get up on the stage anymore. And this is. Years later, I can't get up on the stage anymore and sing, sing these songs from a place of emptiness or from a place of uh, wondering about if I'm good enough or valuable enough. And I do believe that that came, the belief that I wasn't good enough started with, with those words. Okay. And it lasted years and years. I mean, yeah. you know, that, that, that was almost 20 years ago yeah. that that was said to me and it, it lasted that long. But one of the people that the Lord sent into your life to help rebuild mm -hmm. you and reposition you and love you back to life was our brother, Kirk Franklin. Yes. Talk to us about Kirk Franklin. Well, right after I finished this, um, the, that chapter, <laughs> Kirk <laughs> actually life. called me. You know, you get calls from people. He started coming to our church. When you get calls from people like that who say they want to work with you, you're like, I'll never talk to you again. Like after this, you know, he was like, you ready to come with me? And I was like, yeah, yeah. But he held up his end of the that, that phone call. I got off of that bus and walked onto his, and that was right when he was re releasing the, the Rebirth record. Y'all remember that record? Yeah. With Hosanna and Brighter Day and all these amazing songs. Uh, so being able to tour the world with him at 22 years old, he taught me about the 23 hours of a day that we spend off of a stage. That's what was important to him, and I watched him pursue faith in God off of a stage. Integrity. Yes, he, he, was, he was all about growth, and to be able to watch that and to be doing it at this scale, like I, a 22 year old going on a, a world tour for a year and a half with him and Yolanda Adams was there, Donnie McClurkin was there and Yolanda in the middle of the tour was like, come sing with me too. So I was on stage most of the night singing for these, you know, these, these gospel greats and they were investing in my life. So God was giving back to me what was, what was really taken away in that, in that moment. I, I don't want to sound like victimish and you know, all that stuff, but, um, <clears throat> Yeah, so, yeah, Kirk, Kirk was an amazing blessing um, that I, I mentioned that. I got to a point, though, having years of, you know, we're, we're in, we're everywhere, anywhere you can think of. Royal we, Albert we, Hall, yeah. you talked oh, yeah. about in London my, where you sang there. Yeah, and my stuff. first event with him was in London, and Kirk, I come from this world of everything's, you know, planned, and you, you sing this note here, and Kirk is just all over the place and handed <laughs> me a microphone in the middle of the show, the middle of his event. I remember he'll, he handed me the microphone. And I was like, y'all know how Kirk does when he just hands a singer a microphone and goes, go at it, do it, do the thing. And I didn't come from that. So I was like, what's wrong with you? You sick? You good? Why are you handing me the mic? Like, what you? <laughs> so, you know, those are some uh, great memories. He taught me about singing from my soul, not just being a technician, but singing from my, my, my soul and my heart. Um, but over time, I started to take that for granted. The, the blessing that he gave me 
um, I started to take that for granted. Was it like entitlement that you felt like after a little while you felt like, you know what? He trusts me with this microphone. He trusts me with this stage. Yeah, I think the same thing I, I, I did with Kirk, what I do with God sometimes. And when, he, when the blessings keep coming, Oof. you can get comfortable and then you start to shift toward not being responsible with, with, the, blessing. with the blessing. Yep. And yep. so there was a moment where I was not responsible with the blessing and the opportunity that I had. And um, yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, don't don't spoil it. What that looked like, what that what that entitlement kind of how it translated in your relationship with Kirk. Um, but Kirk spoke words of wisdom, truth in love over your life. Mm -hmm. And we're we I mean, Kirk is literally like the fifth child in our family. So mm -hmm. he's we were FaceTiming with him on the way here, actually, yeah. because he's very much still your brother. So even though he had to speak the truth to you, his little brother, there's still a great friendship that has continued from there. We hope you're enjoying the Praise Podcast. We'll get back to the interview soon. Tell us now kind of what things look like now. You've been singing. Um, once you left Kirk's group, you've been singing sort of on your own. You've recorded six albums now. My own sister doesn't know that I've recorded eight albums. It's eight. That's that what I meant. Like I meant eight. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can't keep up. Only six matter, really. But... <laughs> Yeah, I so I, I recorded those albums. I had to choose. At, at one point, I had to choose between Kirk and my own career because it, it's hard to be in and out of somebody when they're doing that much and moving that fast. So um, I got offered a, a, a deal to do my own music. And it was very interesting going from the scenario you explained earlier to Kirk Franklin to my own career in, in Christian music because Christian music, and this is very disheartening to me, even still sometimes, it can be very divided. It can be very contemporary Christian music and gospel music. And there's this line down the middle and the major difference between two is race. Like that, mm. that which is so sad to me, but that, that's how, it's, it's gotten better now. But when I started my career in 04, there were moments where it was like, we need you to hold in a guitar. That was before like the Travis Green days. And you know, where there was, that was, that was where like- Where there were black people actually holding guitars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they um, and, and this is no disrespect to the people in my life. They just were like, in order to be accepted by, because- I am, I don't consider myself a gospel singer like right. that. Like, Tamala Mann is a gospel singer. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. So I'm, I'm more of, a, I have a more pop sound with soul. But in order to be accepted on that side, I started to have to, I got into this world of the industry of what the this, uh, the industry of ministry, which is a contradiction in, in, in and of itself. But that was another hard lesson I had to learn where I almost had to, um, I'm trying to say this in the best way without coming off crazy. <laughs> Did you have to choose between being yourself and selling albums? Okay, there you go. Thank you, Priscilla Shire. Nice way to ask. I had to, I was at a place in my life and career, one, when I was miserable because I was defining success the wrong way. And I was having to manipulate who I was. And, and I wasn't having to, but I'm a kid and, and well, 20 at that point in the industry and you know what, what do I need to do yeah. so I am manipulating who I am putting on different sounds changing my voice not singing high not doing runs not doing all this stuff to be accepted and I thought what happens if one of these songs where I have manipulated my whole self becomes a hit and I have success that means I have to sing this song I do not like for the rest of my life and <laughs> then after I sing that song and have a hit on the radio I still then cannot go write a check for peace after having this hit song. Ooh, so success right. cannot be defined by number one on a radio station or everybody wanting you to come headline a festival. That cannot be success. And when I decided to redefine what success is to me and start chasing the peace, 
and going, it doesn't matter if there are 10 people or 100,000 people. If I have chased peace and defined peace as a, as a um, conduit by, by which I'm going to ex- achieve success, that is when I actually found my calling. I chased um, opportunities that lined up with peace. And um, that is how my career continued yeah, to Yeah, that's so great. Move on. That's so yeah. great. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because, because the reality is you have been at the big festival before. You've been on the, on the platform where 20 or 30,000 people mm-hmm. were in the audience for something you were invited to do. You've been on the television stations before and you've been there and have wanted to just cry a river of tears because you're standing there in the position of success and you just felt complete turmoil on the inside. Right. We, we as a culture, a lot of times, especially in our, in our country, our culture defines success by what do you have tangibly? What, what do I have? What can I hold in my hands that I have worked hard for and I got? There's nothing wrong with having things, but if that is the end all, then there's a problem. Yeah. Because then there, there's going to be a major problem. I, I, I believe in working hard, but I believe, I believe in working hard um, to attain peace first chasing your am i doing what i'm called to do and am i at peace yeah and that is um that that's the definition that that's how i've had to define it yeah, yeah. that's right yeah and also um <clears throat> so i don't want to jump i don't want to jump ahead of you um, no, you're, you're about to jump ahead of me but okay but before you jump ahead i do want to ask you a question about something you said okay because i think it's very interesting that we kind of sit here for just a second that there's one of your albums it might be two or three albums in where it might be the second one mm-hmm. i think um, it's the only one I think where you are not on the cover. Hmm. You are on the cover, but your face is not there because the record exec- executives wanted you to actually have a picture of yourself, but excluding your face so that people would not know you were a black man. Right. And not, not because they're racist, but because they thought if, if they cannot classify you, the, the buyer, the potential buyer can't say that's a white guy or a black guy. If they just are going to zero in on the music, then maybe there's a possibility here. We can sell some records if we just exclude what you actually look like. Right. And I think in that, and, and that was the record that has sold the absolute least of all of the yeah. ones that you've had, right? Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 The one where you basically were instructed to hide yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's what it, it was. And all those people are still, and again, I just want to protect yeah, them. Yeah, you're honoring them. They're, they mean yeah, well. They have, they have, they're the reason why I have a career, but the, yeah. and those moves, those moves, they, they called me before a book came out. They called me and apologized for that whole moment. They were like, wow. we don't know what we were thinking. We wow. are so sorry. There will never be another moment where we ask you to do anything like that. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's just sad to me that in, not everybody's not going to like every kind of music. That's right. But to go through those tactics to, um, to yeah. with, with Christians, you shouldn't have to go through that. As we watch... Pop culture, except everybody, and like one of you know, one station will play everybody's kind of music, but then in our on our side, it's very like it is divided. It's very, it's very divided. And you know what? Yeah. It's so hard because we were at we were actually at the Stellar Awards. We were invited to go there. Our family went together just for fun, and I remember you just whispering to me that it was kind of hard for you to be at the Stellar Awards, and the reason why was because there was a whole season of your life when you were younger and you're working in music and the industry and kind of building what it is that you felt like the Lord had entrusted you to do and you weren't accepted necessarily in the gospel music industry. They didn't know what to do with you because your sound wasn't that. But then in the CCM, the contemporary Christian Dove Award side, they, they didn't accept you there because you weren't quite, you didn't quite fit in. So you were just trying to find your way. And all the while, did you just feel completely lost yeah, in I all felt, that? I felt completely lost. And I was starting from a place of those words you heard earlier of you're worthless and never going to do anything better than this. So 
I would think about that as opposed to thinking about, um, you know, what's crazy is that I learned one of the greatest lessons from somebody who's not necessarily a church singer. Her name is Christina Aguilera, and she was my coach on The Voice. She said to me, look, when I was this pop princess, everybody wanted me to do one thing, and I started doing another. And I was scared to death because I was, I didn't, nobody was doing that. Nobody was doing that. Everybody was just cute and pop, and I was doing something else. And I, in going my own direction, even though I didn't know where I was going, I had to realize that I was blazing a trail for me and everybody behind me by being myself. And she was just Ooh. talking to me. Yeah. And I was like, I'm gonna get, I'm getting this, this life lesson from Christina Aguilera, who has no idea right now that she's speaking into my ministry by, <laughs> by saying those words to me. Yeah, um, be but, yourself. Yes, yes, be yourself. Yeah. And you will not only be blazing a trail for you, but everybody behind you who wants to be able to just use their, use yeah. the voice in the way they want to use their voice. And um, I, I mentioned a, a little story in here. This book is a lot about a couple key things. It's just about obedience in, in certain areas where I've had to, you know, it's like little, little steps of obedience a lot of times unlock our freedom. And I learned this lesson on a plane. I, uh, uh, I, I fly a lot, y'all, and I don't like to fly. I don't like it. And I got to the point where, you know, the, the announcement comes on, buckle your seatbelt, put your laptop up, and I've stopped listening to that announcement. I know I need to listen to it, but sometimes I'm just doing my own thing, you know. You rebellious I was man. being a little bit rebellious. I wasn't in full <laughs> worship leader mode that day. And uh, <laughs> she came, the flight attendant came for the third time and was like, yo, you need to, you need to buckle your seatbelt. You, we need to go. And the fourth, she didn't say yo. Is that what you're about to say? No, I was going to say, you holding up the whole flight. Yes, I'm holding up the obedient. flight. And, and the, by the, the last time, she got down in my face a little bit and was like, Sir. Yes, you have asked us to take, this is what she said. She said, you have asked us to take you to a destination, but you are refusing to do this seemingly insignificant thing. But when you do that, it will not, it, we will be able to take off and take you where you ask us to take you in the first place. And she said, not only will we, will we take off with you, but everybody who's with you will also get to go to the destination too. If and you'll in, just do if the you'll little, just thing do the little insignificant do. thing. So one of the things that God, all the things that God's asked me to do a lot of times seem very insignificant as related to career or my life. But what I have to realize is that when we do the little seemingly insignificant things that God asks us to do, it will have us take off to the destination. He's, we've asked him to take us in the first place. And it won't just be <laughs> us going. It'll be everybody who's with everybody us that gets to go to the to destination. Yeah, that's yeah great. so that, that happens when you pursue your unique that's calling. Great. Yeah. That's really great. So, you know, I will say that one of the main questions, and by the way, look at that. I just flipped right to that page of you and Christina Aguilera right there because you talk about her in the book. Yeah. And just about. um, Sweet lady. Yeah. You said she's a sweet lady and just the the few things that in y'all's conversations that you that you had, how it sort of changed the trajectory of some of the things that you did. But one of the things as well that has really marked you, I would say, um, in a way that was a little bit sad at the time, but really has sort of the Lord, as he does, uses, has used to mold you into the guy you are today. And also, by the way, one of the main questions as a family that we get asked is about you being married. People are trying to figure out. People are trying to figure out about this handsome man and why he might not be married. And um, so I just thought I'd bring that up because you do talk about a little incident that happened in that area of your life in the book. Talk a little bit about that because that was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. I I talk about, um, I I went through a period in my life where one of the hardest things I've ever done is go through a broken engagement and then have to get up on stage and sing about the faithfulness of God all in a 24-hour period. That's, that's, for somebody like me, that's the phoniest I've ever felt. That's the most broken I've ever felt. 
And I got up on stage, and I remember saying into the microphone, I don't feel like doing this. And I, I saw my road manager in the back go, well, that's the end of that. You know what I mean? This, yeah. It's over now. Uh, but that created a lot of issues in me. And it wasn't, she didn't create issues in me. I, that whole scenario created issues in me. So I want to protect uh, her also. But yeah, ever since then, and I've, listen, I am a proponent of counseling. I've been in counseling since then. I have major commitment issues. And I have married to my career and I work really hard, but I have major commitment issues that I work through once a month with, with a counselor. And until I'm ready, I'm not doing it for Christian culture. I'm not trying to make everybody happy. I'm not That's going to try to work, paint. Right? Yeah, it's too much work to try to paint the picture to Christendom of what they think I should be. I'm not doing that. So yeah. that's, that's where I am right now, yeah. Do you think as difficult, as difficult as you said it was, and you said you felt phony and that sort of stuff, the day that you, in that 24-hour period, broke an engagement and you were standing on stage, is there something redeeming about that, though? The fact yeah. that despite the difficulty, despite the broken heart, despite the frustration, you led worship anyway. Right. I... I always talk about that. I talk about the fact that I decided to sing anyway. It, it's not because I'm noble. It's because I was there, had a microphone. But either way, I decided to worship in spite of the way that I felt. And when I made the decision to worship in spite of the way that I felt, I have never, to this day, I have never had a worship experience that deep. The audience either. I'm sure, I mean, I told, I did. I told, um, <laughs> I told the audience what was going on in my life. I'm sure some of them were like, yo, we just came to worship. That's too much. You know what I mean? But... <laughs> I told them what was going on, and by the end, by, by the time I opened my eyes singing one of these songs, there wasn't a dry eye in the room, mm-hmm. because people um, could see me making the choice to worship in spite of the way that I feel, and I think that speaks louder sometimes than putting on a slick presentation of worship, to be able to uh, understand, my dad says this all the time, is that feelings don't have intellect, and in that moment, I felt left, lost, abandoned, like God's forgotten about me. But I had to bounce my feelings off the truth. And the truth is found in verses like Philippians 1.6. It says, I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And that's whether we feel like it or not. Yeah. So in that moment, again, I've never felt God meet me in a deeper uh, way than worshiping, worshiping him in spite of, yeah. of the way I was feeling. And, and even there are things that aren't included in this book. Our family has gone through some pretty tragic stuff in the last um, few weeks, really. But we, we <laughs> lost a member of our family. And this is an unexpected place to find any kind of redeeming anything, to lose a young, um, our cousin, she's 38, young, vibrant. and Four small, well, daughters. Yeah, Yeah. four four daughters, two twin-year-old twins that are nine and 12, 14, um, texting her at 5 o'clock and then lost her at 6.30. Like, she's gone. I, I, I have watched my cousin's husband, who is one of my best friends, he was my manager for years, I have watched him worship in spite of that loss and see him, see the lives that have already been changed and altered because he decided to worship in spite of the way that he is feeling right now. And if, if, if he can worship through that, um, I, I can worship through anything. I, and I just left his house this morning. I flew here from there to help him. Everybody, all families kind of rotating in and out to help him with the kids and stuff, but he he morning devotions with the kids and praying over them and, and um, still ministering to people in, in spite of the way that he, that he feels. And in this unexpected place of loss at the event we just came from, um, we just saw 30 or 40 women give their lives to the Lord based on our cousin Winter's story. The a night before we were with my, dad, with my brother, 
Same thing. People are giving their lives to the Lord because he's deciding to worship in spite of the way, uh, in spite of what he's going through at yeah. this moment. And that's what, yeah. that's what it's about. You know, yeah. just, to, just to your point here, um, you know, I was just thinking of, as you were talking, remembering, gosh, I guess 16, 17 years ago, I had just found out, I don't even know if I ever told you this, but I had just found out that I was pregnant with our first child, me and Jerry. And um, we were traveling to Chicago. I surprised him on the airplane, the stewardess coming over the airplane um, speaker to say, hey, the guy in 22A, you're going to be a dad for the first time. It was all fun. And then we were going to Chicago. I was speaking there. And I went to the restroom backstage right before going up on the platform. And there were very clear signs that I was having a miscarriage. And this is, so this is before Jackson. My, yeah, you know, I, rem- Jackson. I remember. You remember not, not all these details, but I remember the yeah, story. Yeah, so the point is... I, I can't go get Jerry sitting way in the back of the room. I'm up front. I can't do anything about it. And I just had to go up there and speak <laughs> and, and share what the Lord had put on my heart to share, all the while knowing the very real possibility that I was having a miscarriage in that moment. Yeah. But in that session, I watched God move and impact people's lives. And the reality is that sometimes when we just put one foot in front of the other and trust yeah. that he who began a good work... Yeah is faithful to complete the work, you know? Yeah, I really, I really believe that if we do what we can, God will always do what we can't. And that is the bottom line. That's the bottom line. I, I, I live by that. I, I live by that and I encourage everybody in this room to live by that, everybody who's watching to live by that. Do what you can, God will work all things together for your good and do what you, do what you cannot, especially yeah. when you're facing yeah. Um, scenario, un- unexpected scenarios and unexpected yeah. places. And the reality is when people say, you know, I want to know God's will for my life. Sometimes his will is best clearly seen in just do the next thing. Right. What has he put in front of you to do? Do it. Right. Do it. Yep. Do it. <laughs> yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Absolutely. Be obedient to that. So um, that's what your story, honestly, that's what your story really teaches us. Um, in so many places and seasons of life where you have chosen to be so honest with your struggle, with your internal struggle, with bouts of depression that you had to really kind of, as your family, we had to help to pull you out of. You had to be proactive and fight for yourself in those ways. The doubt, um, getting labels off of you where other people put labels on you. You've had to work hard to get, this hasn't been like just a, a breezy fairy tale story. You've had to work hard to get yourself out into a place of health. Yes, I've had to work really hard. And one of the, the greatest things I ever did was decide to be honest and vulnerable and transparent because that set me up with a soft place to land. I remember asking a, I have a friend of mine who's an elite gymnast. And I said, why are you not afraid to keep trying new skills? And she just looked at me and said, because I have a soft place to land. And I thought that, that is the most amazing concept because she will continue to try a skill until she lands on her feet because she has a soft place to land. And I believe that it is our responsibility as believers to be a soft place for people, but then to create that with, through friendships, relationships, counseling, it creates a soft place to land. Not for you to lay, lay down and do nothing. Like you got to get up <laughs> and you got to work, but you can keep working until you land on your feet. And this book is a lot of those stories and challenges to the audience to, to keep working through um, and, and keep working and eventually you will land on your feet. Yeah. Most of these chapters... I've landed on my feet after a, a bout with, with something pretty, yeah. pretty intense. So, Anthony, what is next for you? Like, what would you like to see happen next? You've kind of had a 
world open up for you with music. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, someone asked you to be in a film, Cage No More. You write about that with Loretta Devine. Yeah. All of a sudden, we saw you on screen with Loretta Devine. We were like, what in the world? Yeah. So you've got film and music and your personal private life and all the great things happening there. So kind of what, what's next for you? What would you love to see happen next? What's next for me is pursuing every, every opportunity I get to pursue it with excellence and, and to use the, the tools that God's given me, whether it's my voice or writing or the opportunities he's given me in Hollywood, which we haven't gotten to talk about really that much. Um, yeah. But my life looks now there. But it's basically using those to the, uh, optimizing those with the end result of getting to hearts for him. That, that's what's next for me. Because when I started, when I try to map out and say, next, I want to be doing this, it rarely happens that way. <laughs> My objective is to understand that God's love for me is, is aggressive and it's reckless. And he wants, he, he wants me to just go after what's in front of me, like you said, yeah. with all I have. Yeah. That's, that's what's next for me. Yeah. And I, I'm so glad that you shared your story because people are going to be blessed by this. They really are. Because the reason why I think they're going to be blessed is because they're going to see themselves in the book. They're going to see the themselves point. in the book. And yeah. I know that was your point. So thank you for that. I um, am so grateful to Anthony for a lot of reasons. He's one of my closest friends. He's just my best, my best friend, my baby brother. Um, and I'm proud of him for this. And I know that you're going to be excited as well when you read this book and that you're going to be blessed by it. Thank you for listening to this episode of TBN's Praise Podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend, and consider leaving a review. We look forward to having you join us back here next week.